0: I'm reading John chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. In the church Bibles, it's on page 902. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Ice chips. This was the one thing I did right when my daughter Eden was in the process of being born. If there are right words for comfort during the process of birth, I never found them. If there's a correct method for providing comfort through some kind of physical touch, I never discovered that method. I'm pretty sure those methods don't exist. But for whatever reason, when my words and my touches weren't enough, little frozen droplets of water were. Ice chips was what she wanted, and ice chips she would be granted. Throughout the entire ordeal, I delivered those ice chips like a boss. (laughs) Giving birth is hard, right? So they say, brutally hard. It's painful, it's messy, it's exhausting. But, but, all along the way, as the pain increases and as the tears begin to flow, the prospect of the emergence of that child is what rivets the woman to the task at hand. I can endure this for a little while, knowing what I get to hold after this whole ordeal is over. Brief pain yields to pure joy, making that brief pain worth every second. The moment Miriam's eyes focused on that little Eden, the pain and the exhaustion, though not removed, were somehow transformed into something else altogether. Pain somehow transformed into joy. That was so hard, but look, I've got this kid. It's great. You can see it on a mom's face too, can't you? Tear-streaked cheeks, absolute exhaustion, Matted hair, sweaty brows, utter weariness, and yet shining through that miserable facade is an expression of pure joy. Finding joy in life's sorrows is an absolutely mysterious pursuit. If you can find no purpose in your pain and put your your mind on whatever point of pain you're experiencing right now in your life, if you can't find purpose in that, you're going to shrivel up. Death, disease, infertility, job loss, physical pain. Jesus wants you and me to know that there is a joy so deep and so palpable and so real that it can literally carry you on the darkest of days and even make sense of your darkest days. Like the mom who just finished birthing a child, your face might be a miserable mess. But there is a joy so real and so transcendent that it can shine through all of that and hold you fast. Not necessarily happiness, but joy. All of us have experienced seasons of sorrow to greater or lesser degrees. But what anchors do you have in your life right now to keep your boat from flipping when the waves of grief are just slapping against your lifeboat? over? And over without end. I think there are some anchors in today's text that some of you need to throw down immediately before you're blown over. So, as a reminder, here in John 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night before he's killed. He's trying to help them understand what's about to happen to them. He's putting tools in their hands to be able to cope with the darkness and the brokenness that's to come. So, in verse 16, if you look, he says, A little while, and you will see me no more. Again, a little while, and you will see me. The disciples are so confused by this. And in verses 17 and 18, they're like, What in the world do you even mean, Jesus? What are you talking about? In a little while, you won't see me, and then a little while, you will. We've got to keep in our minds this realization that these guys still had no category in their minds at all that would allow them to make sense of a Messiah who would die rise and then abandon them in favor of another comforter to come we talked about that other comforter last week the holy spirit they're completely and utterly in the dark here jesus knows they're puzzled he says in verse 20 i'm telling you you're going to weep you're going to lament but the world will rejoice you're going to be sorrowful but then your sorrow will turn into joy what's he referring to here he's referring to his death when his disciples will have a deep, anguished sense of loss. And then his resurrection, when their sorrow will be transformed into joy. In verse 21 there, if you look, he compares what is about to happen to him and to the disciples with a woman in childbirth. We just kind of discussed that illustration. She's able to hang in for a little while because of the prospects of holding that sweet baby. So when we come here to verse 22, it's clear that Jesus has his death and then his resurrection in view. So he says, you have sorrow now. You do. He doesn't ignore it. And he means that his death is just around the corner. And the loss and pain are going to be enormous for his friends. Enormous. But then he says, but I will see you again. He's predicting his own resurrection from the dead. I think it's interesting to note if you look that after saying three times in verses 16, 17, and 19, he says, you will see me. In verse 22, he says, I will see you. Even in your sorrow, you are seen. You're not just called to see God, but you can know that you are seen by God. You are known by God. Then he says, your hearts are going to rejoice. And that's what happened. If you can can think ahead, I guess, in the story to John chapter 20, verse 20, uh, on the first day of the week, When Jesus rose from the dead, he came to them. He showed them his hands and his side. And then John says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus' prediction there in verse 22 of chapter 16, it actually comes true. He says, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Well, just a few chapters later, we read of that actually taking place. And then come some amazing words that are some of the primary anchors of this text. And we're going to land on pretty hard this morning. Once the disciples cast their sights on the risen Christ... Verse 22, no one can take their joy from them. No one can take their joy from them. This joy, whatever it is, however you get it, is indestructible. It cannot be lost. It is sure and firm and solid and certain. This joy will not end, says Jesus. And this same joy, don't you want joy that won't end? This same joy is available to you and me. Unassailable, indestructible, invincible joy. Let's see if we can unpack the recipe for this joy in these next couple minutes here. Jesus here wants his disciples and us to know that future hope is a present help for joy in the midst of sorrow. Future hope is a present help. And I think there are at least three things here that make this a reality in your sorrow. Seize hold of these. First, you've got to sync your clock with God's clock. Sync your clock with God's clock. Doesn't this happen in your home every once in a while? Guys, you probably don't get the privilege to answer this, just the ladies. Not to be stereotypical here, but here's an example. Ladies, you ever had the experience when your husband is watching the game and you're hollering for help with something on the other side of the house and he yells out, I'll be there in a sec! And we all know that the definition of sec differs from person to person, don't we? His definition might be, uh, be there around halftime-ish, while yours is an actual sec. Go figure. Because each of us has different expectations, this can cause quite a stir in our house, if you know what I mean. You need to get on the same page. Sync your clocks, or you're going to be in for a lot of frustration between the two of you. Well, the disciples had no idea what Jesus meant by a little while. They didn't know how long or short Jesus' little while was. And you won't either. It turns out that in this instance, their wait would only be for three days. But Jesus would leave again and they'd be left to struggle through pain and setbacks without his physical presence there. When your timetable for suffering doesn't match with God's, what are you going to do? 2 Corinthians 4 speaks into this. Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. So You see what God calls a sec may differ than what you call a sec. What you call an unbearably long trial God calls light and momentary. Now it's not because he's heartless and cold. It's not that at all, but it's because he lives in the eternal. He's got his sights set on your bright and sure and beautiful future. Trinity, it would be wise for us to sync our clocks with God's clock. Putting on God's watch can sustain you in your suffering, in your sorrow. Last week, we saw Jesus' promise to send the Spirit as a comforter. I don't know if you remember that. But doesn't this kind of promise assume that our lives will be filled with grief? Isn't that why he sent us the Spirit in the first place? That's why this comforter had to come. So as we learn to sync our clocks with God's, we don't have to go it alone. We need to lean into the Spirit of God, our ever-present help. Now, you may feel like whatever it is that you're going through in your life right now could never be described as light and momentary. Far from it. And I I completely, I understand that impulse. But could I just graciously press in to say that your clock might not be synced with God's. His clock's standard is based in eternity. When we lose sight of this and focus entirely on our current sorrow and not the future joy that is rooted in eternity, the eternal weight of glory, when we lose sight of this, we lose perspective even of our current trials. Over and over and over again, Jesus here is using sight verbs. You will see me. You will see me. He's talking about seeing a lot. It's like he wants one of their eyes focused on the grave, his grave, and then one of their eyes focused on his resurrection, the grave. You will see me no longer. Then one eye focused on the future, his resurrection. Then you will see me again. If both of your eyes, though, are focused on your current sorrow, you'll never be able to gain perspective in the midst of that sorrow. So seeing Jesus increases joy by removing ignorance. Seeing Jesus increases joy by removing ignorance. In verse 20, Jesus tells them, you will be sorrowful, but that sorrow will be turned into joy. All of our ears should perk here. We should want to know what the transforming agent is from sorrow into joy. How exactly does that happen? Well, according to Jesus here, it's, it's simple. It's seeing Jesus. He's proposing this sort of like double vision to prepare the disciples to make it through the dark season ahead. One eye on the current frustration. One eye on the end of all frustration. The risen Christ. This is exactly how Jesus himself was able to stare down the cross. Jesus... For the joy set before him endured the cross. How did Jesus make it through what the Father called him to endure? He looked ahead to the joyful inheritance of nations he was about to get. To you and me, who would be rest. That was the joy set before Jesus. You and I were a part of the joy that sustained Jesus as he endured that cross. And if Jesus' joy in you sustaining him in suffering is it an anchor for you and yours and i don't i don't know what will be jesus joy and you sustained him on the cross and this is the only way you're going to be able to stare down your suffering your sorrow you are going to suffer i wish i could say it was different but i can't the founder of our faith was perfected through suffering jesus himself hebrews 2 there's no avoiding suffering What we must learn, though, is how to endure suffering. And we don't endure suffering by ignoring what is right in front of us, by turning a blind eye, by living in some kind of fantasy world like it doesn't exist. I had a friend years ago who, when he saw the check engine light come up on his dashboard, he would get duct tape and cover over the light on his dashboard so he couldn't see it anymore. Unfortunately, that doesn't work in real life. It doesn't Ignoring problems doesn't solve problems. So if ignorance isn't truly bliss, what do we do when faced with trials that fuel the sorrow of our hearts? We endure sorrow by engaging in intentional double vision. One eye on our suffering, one eye on the end of our suffering, one eye on the joy set before us when we finally get to see the Savior. Here Jesus is saying, look, I make no bones about it. It's about to get real ugly. Real ugly, he tells them. But just wait. One eye on the cross, one eye on the resurrection. Trinity, you've got to keep an eye transfixed on the Christ even while the other is staring the resurrected Christ even while the other is staring at the crucified Christ. And similarly in our lives, we've got to keep an eye trained on our sorrow even while we stare longingly for the day that we make eye contact with the Savior. It's both. We have to engage in both. If we just focus over here, we're going to lose perspective. We're going to lose hope. We're going to succumb to the sorrow. And listen, I don't want to belittle your suffering this morning. I know it's real and brutal and hard. I know it doesn't feel like a little while to you. So I don't want to downplay it. I just want to put it in its place for us this morning. Are you in pain? Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's psychological. It'll just be a little while. Are you losing or have you lost loved ones in Christ? You'll see them in a little while. Are you sad and you don't even know why? The pain will dissipate in a little while. Once we see Jesus, like the disciples did, our pain will finally be put in perspective. And against the backdrop of God's epic eternity, we'll finally be able to make sense of our pain, of our sorrow and suffering. Fill your heavy heart with heavy doses of heaven. Look ahead. Fill your heavy heart with heavy doses of heaven to sustain your soul in the midst of sorrow. Can I just get really practical for a moment here? How can we practically, functionally see Jesus? We need to realize that ignorance of Jesus is the enemy of joy. Ignorance of Jesus is the enemy of joy. You can't rejoice in something that you don't know. So Trinity fam, study your Bibles and see Jesus in the pages of this book. When we see Jesus over and over and over, we will begin to learn what it is to experience joy, even in the midst of sorrow, like these disciples. Ignorant Christians aren't joyful Christians. If you are ignorant of the God of this book, you should just plan right now to be overwhelmed by the curveballs this life throws you. Because they're going to throw them at you. So there's a simple equation here. Little Bible equals little Jesus, equals little joy. Little Bible, little Jesus, little joy. And you can't see Jesus outside of this book. So if you're not in this book, you can plan to have a hard time experiencing joy even in the midst of your sorrow. Jesus wants to walk with you in your suffering. And by his spirit, he's going to use the eternal truths of this book to sustain your joy and even as you limp through life. Read this. Pray this. Sing this. Sit under this. Find friends who will shove this book into your soul through your email inbox, through your text messages, and through verbal encouragement. So future hope is a present help. And you lay hold of that help by synchronizing your clock with God's by seeing Jesus in this book, and also by sinking your roots into joy, not just pleasure. Sink your roots into joy, not just pleasure. Now, I want us to see that the source of this joy that Jesus promises here over and over again, this joy is sourced in Jesus himself. But the world constantly wants to offer you its substitutes. Constantly. Constantly and I'm afraid we all fall prey to their whispers all too often. We need to acknowledge that there is a world of difference between pleasure and joy. A world of difference between those two things. Our hearts are spring-loaded to pursue pleasure, often at the expense of actual true joy. The pleasure of more sleep or more shows or more sports or more money often seduce us before we even begin the joy pursuit. I'm guilty of this. But the joy Jesus offers is immutable. It is irrevocable. It's permanent. Verse 22, look at it. No one will take your joy from you. What is the difference between pleasure and then joy from Jesus? Well, pleasure ends. It always has a period at the end of a sentence. Try to imagine a pleasure this world offers that doesn't eventually end. Try to think of one. And every time it ends for you, it's always kind of like, oh, man, that was nice, but now it's over. You want enough room in your stomach and glycemic index to keep eating white lightnings. I'm done with the white lightnings jokes after this week, I promise. But your stomach fills. You want a relationship to continue forever, but that friend moves away. Kids, You want the magic of Christmas to stretch just a little bit longer, but the sun always sets on December 25th without fail. And on and on and on we go with pleasures that are amazing, but only shadows of joy and not the actual substance of joy. But why are we like this? Why is humanity like this? Why isn't pleasure just enough? Why do all the things we employ to cope never quite work? Drugs, drunkenness, sex, money, even good things like charity work or time with our families, whatever, why aren't those pleasures ultimately satisfying? It's because all of us in here and all the way around the world, we're all made for something more. Eternity itself is baked into our souls as human beings. Our souls crave joy, not just pleasure. That's why it's never enough. And we need to realize this morning that God has a monopoly on joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. There is no other place to snag true joy. C.S. Lewis once said, Joy is never in our power, even though pleasure often is. I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. Lewis is right. Joy isn't in our power. It's only in God's. It's more work to achieve joy because you have to go to someone else for it. Pleasure hits are way easier to come by. So is your life marked merely by pleasure pursuits or are you pursuing joy by seeing Jesus in this book and with his people? And I I really don't want to be misunderstood here. I think there is joy to be found in pleasure too. As we experience life's gifts from God, But if you want abiding joy in sorrow and not just fleeting pleasures in sorrow, you're going to need to sink your roots far deeper than the superficial pleasures this world has to offer. There's plenty of rich soil to dig in down there. Dig, Trinity. So this leads to a brief and final point this morning. Jesus basically provides two means of joy maintenance for us in the midst of our sorrow. It's future hope And faithful prayer. Future hope, and then grab on to faithful prayer. Faithful prayer is a sure means to joy in the midst of sorrow. If you're wondering, how in the world am I going to make it to the end of this trial or of this life? How am I going to make it to the end with my faith roots still planted firmly in Jesus? With joy so profound, it sustains me in great loss. This is it, right here. Cast an eye to the future and plant your knees on the ground. Future hope, faithful prayer. Verses 23 and 24. It's here that we find a sort of rubric for what faithful prayer looks like. It's in Jesus' name. First, he says, whatever you ask of the Father, in my name. Praying in Jesus' name. Remember when your mom used to call you by your full name. My mom would say it through gritted teeth after I'd been running around the auditorium on a Sunday. She'd hiss at me, Joshua Ryan Hurst, just like that. When you get the full name usage, you know she means business, right? I think sometimes we forget to employ Jesus' full name when we pray. We forget that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our prayers should reflect this unassailable truth that Jesus is God and we are not. We simply do not know what is best. He does. Prayer is not the means by which we get God to do what we want him to do. Instead, it is the means by which God does through us what he wants to do. This is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Jesus never ever instructs us To rebuke our disease, or cast out our problems, or speak victory over our trials, or claim future success, or medicate our sorrows with mere pleasure, or demand God to do anything. God is not our genie, and the Holy Spirit is not our puppet. Praying in Jesus' name means surrendering. No matter how deep your sorrow, surrender to the goodness of God in your sorrow. And beyond surrendering to Jesus' lordship, I think praying in Jesus' name means you won't get access to the Father without Jesus. There is no getting to God without coming through Jesus. Now in our pluralistic society, this is like hate speech. This is as bad as it gets. The Christian Jesus is the only way to God. Come on, bro. You might have heard that at the workplace. But the Christian Jesus is the only way to God. And so if that is actually true, it's not hateful, it's actually hopeful. If there's just one path out of a burning house, wouldn't you want to know about that one path? Rather than complaining about how dumb it is that there's only one path out. Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who ever beat death. Think about this. No one before or since Jesus has ever borrowed a tomb. No one's ever borrowed a tomb only to give it back because the grave isn't something that you can ordinarily give back. It's kind of a permanent deal. But Jesus' death wasn't permanent. It was momentary, just like our sorrow will turn out to be for all of us in Jesus. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ, the one who paid for our sin and conquered the grave, I would love to talk with you. There is no greater richer, more sustaining joy than that which Jesus offers us. So faithful prayer is in Jesus' name, and faithful prayer also has joy as its target. End of verse 24 there. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Pray with joy, and not just pleasure in mind. Pray with joy, and not just pleasure in mind. You ever gone bowling with bumpers? Bowling with bumpers is the way to go. Keeps the ball placement good and your score high. Listen, if you are looking for the highest return on investment for your prayers, pray with the bumpers that Jesus provides in this text. They're joy bumpers. Do you know what will bring you the most joy? The glory of God. That's to be the target of our prayers. And I'm going to borrow a well-known phrase here from John Piper that is probably familiar to you that I think will help us. He says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so the reason our joy is so closely attached to God's glory is because our deepest longings are actually satisfied in God. So praying with joy bumpers in mind should cause us to pray things like, God, increase my joy in you in this scenario. Give me the job that will keep me most satisfied in you, not necessarily the most wealthy. Give me friends that will keep me satisfied in you. Put me in the neighborhood that will increase my joy in you. But more often than not, we pray for what would create the most pleasure for us. Remember the difference between joy and pleasure. Pleasure ends. Joy in Jesus goes on forever. More often than not, we pray for what would create pleasure. And often those aren't wrong requests, but they're like the appetizers rather than a meal. You ever been starving at a really good restaurant and wasted all your stomach space on appetizers and bread? I've confessed this problem to you all before. Bloomin' onions are my absolute nemesis here. Does it get any better in the appetizer world than a Bloomin' Onion? It doesn't. The fried, layered onion with the spicy, succulent sauce. Some of you are going to change your lunch plans right now. Even better, enjoying a Bloomin' Onion just before you enjoy Outback's iconic prime rib. But here is the problem with the Bloomin' Onion. It's almost like too good, you know what I'm saying? I can't tell you how many times I've thought, What's the point of them even bringing the prime rib now? I'm stuffed. The appetizer, as amazing as it is, tends to ruin an even greater component of the meal, the main course, the prime rib, medium rare. Wasting stomach space on bloomin' onion rather than waiting for the prime rib is like merely praying for pleasure and not for joy. There's a place for pleasure, but it's not the main event of your prayers. Joy is the prime rib of your prayers. I'm going to regret saying that, I think. But joy is the main event to your prayers. It is the thing that should anchor your prayers. The everlasting, immutable, non-perishing joy of Jesus. I know I've read this quote here at Trinity Gatherings before, but I think it's so relevant. And We're getting a healthy dose of C.S. Lewis this morning, but here's what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Do you find this to be true about your prayer life? Sometimes we are far too easily pleased and our prayers actually reflect that. There is infinite joy at the feet of the Father through Christ the Son. Now this morning, I don't know what heavy burden you're bearing. Some of you come in right now and I know you are bearing the heaviest of loads. Unspeakably grieved this morning. I want us all to hear this. Thousands of years from now, when we know what God knows, we will not accuse him of anything except for having always been faithful. We can all be tempted to accuse God of being unloving when we face sorrow, but God promises that he is using all things, even horrific things, for our ultimate good if we are in Christ. We can rarely discern how that's true today but someday we will see. You know, if Eden had never come in that hospital room, she had never been born, if all there was was pain and ice chips, eventually the diversion of those ice chips would have proven to be less than satisfying. But when faith became sight, it put all of that pain pain all of that sorrow in perspective. That was hard, but I have this child now. As we all in here wait for Jesus to make all things right, all things new, let's fill our heavy hearts with heavy doses of heaven. At that point, when we are there with the resurrected Christ, we'll all agree that for those of us in Christ, our brief pain has surely yielded to pure joy at the end of our days we will all say that was so hard but i got jesus will you pray with me this morning lord help us believe and know and hold on to so tight that jesus is enough jesus we believe that you're enough help our unbelief I pray that you would anchor our souls in the joy of Jesus, even this week. We ask this for the glory of your Son and the good of these people underneath your words, all of us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen.